um, doing kind of my consultative role that I really, um, it really opened my eyes to how terrible research is <laughs> on a whole, how bad it is. And um, I hate to pop people's bubbles sometimes, but I have worked with people, you know, PhDs from Harvard, from Yale, from Stanford. I have worked with people at Google at the top of the chain. I've worked with people, you know, at Netflix, at Nike, and all these big places where, you know, they're using this research to make decisions for their entire company, for their lives, to get their PhDs, to, you know, do things with, um, transplant patients, things like that. And after actually having helped look at these studies, design these studies, um, fulfill these studies, I just realized, oh my gosh, this data is crap. Ready to live at the higher vibrations where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, Robin Openshaw here. Welcome back to The Vibe Show. The Vibe Show has taken a dramatic turn in 2020, as you noticed in March. All different programming. We were talking about what seems, as I look back, such lightweight topics before March of 2020. (laughs) And now it's adjusting to a new world and um, standing up, standing up for our rights, standing up for our health freedom, I was at a a health freedom symposium a couple weekends ago uh, in Utah County, which is about an hour from me here in Park City. It's where I raised my kids. And and I was approached by a woman named Julie Dean Richards. And she comes out of her academic background was at BYU, Idaho, and where she studied communications. And she's been a researcher for six years. And she's gotten very passionate. Uh, after working for a nonprofit and, and working for Qualtrics, which I think is a lot about uh, metrics, um, she has gotten very passionate about teaching people how to communicate about health freedom. And when she told me this, I was like, oh my gosh, that seems very needed. And since my background is as a psychologist and a therapist, um, these are topics that are near and dear to my heart, but this is very targeted and very specific. Um, what what Julie likes to talk to people about is how to talk to people about vaccines, how to talk to people about health freedom issues. Listen, if people are pro-vax, they wear it like a badge. They feel morally superior because they're quote pro-vax. And so these issues are so controversial. They are, they are damaging relationships. And Julie's really been studying how to talk about these things without inciting anger. But getting people in a short period of time to listen to you to, and getting your message to stick. So welcome to the Vibe Show, Julie Dean Richards. Hi, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, this, is, this is a great topic and it's never been more incendiary than it is here in 2020. However, you know, one of the only good things about this situation that we all find ourselves in this year that none of us could have anticipated. I mean, I think every day about if somebody would go back eight months and tell me what our world would look like and how, how fast it would change, we would, have, we would have laughed at them. We wouldn't have believed them. It would, we would have said, no, that's a science fiction movie. Like you're getting, you're getting fiction mixed up with the truth. But here we are. But one of the good things 
about this is that I see people waking up, people who would have called themselves pro-vax eight months ago. The more they hear their friends talking about all the information that's coming out about, that's making everybody very nervous about that the agenda here is really to force not only a COVID vaccine on all of us, but to get us tracked and force a whole adult schedule. I mean, we have 72 needle sticks by the time our children, um, you know, through, through a childhood, I believe it's 72 different needle sticks. I think there's 21 needle sticks in the first year of life, something like that. And so I have a lot of people in my life who are waking up, they're learning about vaccines because all they have to do is become aware that they're a human guinea pig and there are autoimmune diseases associated with the existing vaccine schedule in children and that autoimmune diseases have something like quadrupled in one generation. And a lot of researchers point to how many vaccines have proliferated since the 1986 uh, National Vaccine Injury and Compensation Act of 1986. So talk to us about this whole idea that you talk about regarding cognitive dissonance, okay? What's the deal with people's cognitive dissonance with regard to their health freedom or specifically vaccines? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I deal with this all the time. Um, And cognitive dissonance is actually a physical reaction. So for those who don't know what cognitive dissonance is, it's when you receive a view or information or facts that are contrary to your worldview and to deeply held beliefs, and it causes Um, this kind of confusion in you or anger, negative thoughts, feelings, those kinds of things. That's cognitive dissonance. And a lot of people don't understand that, um, you know, we get really frustrated and angry with people when we're telling them facts about health freedom or our rights or vaccines and things like that. And we get angry that they're so angry. Like, why are they so upset? Well, the reason they're so upset and the reason it's so hard for people to listen is because they're having an actual physical reaction. So there are quite a few MRI studies showing um, where they put people in an MRI and show them information, things uh, that are different than their worldview that are contrary. And you can see the brain just light up. Um, and light up with anger and light up with all of these reactions, these chemical reactions. So when people do get angry, um, don't be mad at them right away because they are having a physical reaction. And our job um, is to get back, is to get past that reaction because that reaction is going to lead to rejection. As we've all seen, I'm sure all of us have had conversations of some kind with someone where they just kept, you know, rejecting, instantly rejecting. Even if they didn't say it, you could see it on their face. You know, you couldn't realize, oh my gosh, why are they having these, you know, this anger towards me? It's because of that cognitive cognitive dissonance. And that's why it's it's so important to understand and to work with. And we can get past cognitive dissonance. We can get people to listen to us. But first we have to understand the the physical reaction that's happening. Interesting. Yeah. It it actually reminds me of not to go sideways from health freedom issues, but it reminds me of Trump supporters and haters. I mean, it, it almost seems like there's nobody in the middle. I was probably like one of the very few people in the middle. I wasn't super fond of Donald Trump. 
I had watched him extensively when he did that show, The Apprentice, and I used to create video clips for my BYU students. I taught management communications 320 at BYU for many years, and and I would show him, but but I didn't like develop this massive respect for him or anything like that. And then I was like, what is this guy doing running for our president? But I wasn't really involved. I wasn't really involved. I wasn't paying attention to what was going on in our country. I was very disenfranchised. And then I didn't vote in 2016 because I just couldn't, I absolutely wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton, but I also couldn't get excited about Donald Trump. I just couldn't make myself go to the, to the voting booth and, and pull the trigger on either one of them. So I just literally didn't vote and it felt weird to sit out. But honestly, I feel like I'm the only one that was in the middle on him. And I, I was sort of leaning negatively towards him. Now I'm watching it. And, and now I feel like the stakes are super high right now. And I had to pay attention. It's starting in March, 2020. I really plugged in, started listening very carefully to everything that Donald Trump had to say and his actions. And I realized that he might be the only one standing up for my children's future. He might be the only one standing up for the economy as we just started crushing everything in sight in favor of being terrified of this virus. And so, you know, I just feel like there's this cognitive dissonance. I would love to see what the what happens when people's brains light up when someone mentions Trump. Like if, if someone who has, they, they call it Trump derangement syndrome, people who really, really hate him. And, um, you know, if some Trump supporter says something, I can only imagine what they would, that would look like inside an MRI because they get so hot. It's it's funny. I wasn't there, but I guess on the tennis court, I, I play tennis competitively, Julie, and um, I wasn't there, but my team played a match last last week, and one of my teammates just started going off about Donald Trump and how only idiots would vote for him. Whatever. Anyways, it's funny because when I heard the story later from my teammates, all everybody else on the court was a Trump supporter. <laughs> and, and so, and it just made the whole game really tense and really uncomfortable. And it, and it just kind of reminds me, like we can all relate to that because we all know people who hate Donald Trump so badly that they've literally said on their Facebook wall, if you are supporting Trump, get off my page. We aren't friends anymore <laughs> or whatever. And, and then, you know, and the, and the, the other side is, is almost equally vociferous. And this, this health freedom thing, this pro-vax or anti-vax thing is just as incendiary as that. And the way, the way I think of it is that people who consider themselves, quote, pro-vax, consider my unvaccinated child to be a threat to their life. That's why they feel so strongly about it. And I always try to remind myself of that. Well, if I didn't know what I knew, if I didn't know what I knew, if I hadn't spent the last... 25 years studying this stuff. And all I knew was the brainwashing by the media and the medical uh, industry. Then I would think so too. Right. So like, that's how I kind of calm myself down because I can easily feel angry when I hear that, you know, they're saying that Amy Coney Barrett, who's our new Supreme court uh, justice nominee is totally pro mandatory vax. Christy Nome in South Dakota, the governor, she has been such a champion of the people's freedom and refused to shut her economy down, but she's totally pro mandatory vax. And I do, I get hot under the collar and I have to check myself. And I think you're right. I never thought about it, but I was, I literally have a physical reaction to people who want to force me to inject garbage into my body that I can never get out. So, so let's talk about, can we just back up a minute? Can you, before we get into some of the communication strategies 
that you teach, will you tell us like, why are you passionate about health freedom? Are you vaccine injured? I mean, if you, if you don't feel to answer that, you don't have to, but I'm just curious because you're young um, and you're really devoting a lot of your time and energy to this, this fantastic work to teach us how to talk to other people about vaccines um, and nobody does it better than Bobby Kennedy, by the way. His his um, debate with Alan Dershowitz was amazing. It wasn't even a debate. He just, you know, yeah. it was so good. And and you could even yeah. probably use that as some of your examples. But how'd you get interested in in medical freedom? Well, I um, luckily I have a great older sister, um, and I've always been interested in communication. Like you said, I got my bachelor's in interpersonal communication, which is all about conflict management. But the other half of it was research, and so um, I really wanted to go into a research field. And my older sister, because I wanted to go into research, she would push me studies. She was very informed, and every once in a while we would talk about it and talk about vaccines particularly and holistic medicine, things like that every once in a while. But it wasn't until I was working at Qualtrics and um, doing kind of my consultative role that I really, um, it really opened my eyes to how terrible research is (laughs) on a whole, how bad it is. And um, I hate to pop people's bubbles sometimes, but I have worked with people, you know, PhDs from Harvard, from Yale, from Stanford. I have worked with people at Google at the top of the chain. I've worked with people, you know, at Netflix, at Nike, and all these big places where, you know, they're using this research to make decisions for their entire company, for their lives, to get their PhDs, to, you know, do things with... um, transplant patients, things like that. And after actually having helped look at these studies, design these studies, um, fulfill these studies, I just realized, oh my gosh, this data is crap. Like we are making our decisions um, on research that isn't great research. uh, And so much of it is not good research. And that kind of inspired me more to listen to my sister when she started pushing some more things my way. And I started really reading the CDC website very carefully, looking over those studies really carefully. That's a big part of the reason I left Qualtrics. And I'm not saying that, you know, it's a a bad company by any means. Um, And it really, if you you really want to know, it doesn't really matter where you go to get your data. It it doesn't. I mean, um, at least, you know, survey data, um, it doesn't really matter because it's just, it's really hard to make research good in that plane. It's just, it's super difficult and they're trying as hard as they can, but I just. Well, and why, and why is that? Is that because science is all pretty much most of it anyway, bought and paid for, and there's nobody to fund science unless they have some kind of profit motive and they're trying to prove something with the quote unquote science. Is that why it's so bad? Like you say? Yes, it's. I mean, that's part of it. the The money aspect is a huge aspect, but a lot of our data is going more and more online, and it's extremely expensive. And so, if you don't get the outcome that you want when you're paying all of this money, it's a really bad thing. And and uh, so you just don't happens, publish it, right? Yeah, you don't publish it, right? We don't. We see a. Um, a dip, a huge dip in negative studies, right? We over publish positive studies, but even if you don't publish it, I mean, even when you do publish it, lots of times that's when we do the data tweaks, right? We try to tweak the data 
to make it look like we got the positive outcome. And I think a lot of it is it's just extremely difficult to get good participants. It's really extremely difficult to word things in the right way and to not add bias um, all on its own. And then you add the money aspect on top of that. And so many doctors, I will be really honest with you because I also teach a research workshop and I have taught it to MDs. I've taught it to environmental scientists, PhDs, all kinds of people. And you would be so surprised how many of our professionals don't know how to do good research and don't know how to spot bad research. They just don't. Yeah, isn't, so, it, isn't it amazing? And these are people, that, as in your words, are at the top of the food chain. And, and I have nothing against MDs and PhDs. I mean, I didn't finish my clinical hours, but I got a PhD myself and I was very, very high on formal education when I was your age. And so, you know, this is not to say that formal education is worthless, but it's amazing to me too. You know, I have a friend here locally whose husband is an emergency room physician and he will not read her the research that I take to her, which is, for instance, um, a study that if you get the flu vaccine, you're 430%, I, I, I may be a little off on the statistic, but something like 430% more likely to get another kind of respiratory infection, including you know, COVID, including a coronavirus. And yes, yeah. he gets so angry, that cognitive dissonance that you're talking about, he gets so angry when she even brings it up. And here they're raising the they're raising the same children together. You know, there's yeah. high stakes decisions being made. And and he he really bullied her at the beginning of the the scandemic. Um, he really bullied her to get the flu shot. And she reached out to me and said, Hey Robin, like do you got any you have any um data? on like, should I be getting the flu shot? Because my husband said that I should get the flu shot because it would be so terrible if I got the flu and COVID at the same time. And I was like, okay, that's nonsense. That is complete nonsense. <laughs> <It> is. <laughs> Opposite is true, but you can't tell him anything because he's an MD. So he's been taught that he's at the top of the food chain, even though I bet, I bet he doesn't have five IQ points on me, right? But um, it's not about me versus him, but you know, then I've got all my neighbors not all of them, but a lot of my neighbors have this stupid sign in their yard that says, Black Lives Matter. Science is real. I don't know. It has. It yeah, just has yeah, a bunch of these. I know the sign you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking You guys about. have it down in Utah County, but we have a lot of it here in Park City. And I'm just like, are you kidding me right now? What does that mean? Science is real. As if yeah. <laughs> these people know so little about science that they think that all of the science points the re the same direction when it comes to this virus. Come on. Anyway. Yeah. Now, now I'm on a rant. Anyway. Yeah. And no, it's hard. It's hard. And it's really difficult when you hear people saying things like that, right? You have the physical flare up. And it is true. When people say that to me, like science is real. I like laugh. <laughs> it just makes me laugh inside because I'm like, yes, science is real, really bad. <laughs> all the time, you know? Um, and I think that's really part of the, our cognitive dissonance problem is we have a huge education problem, right? And we have a huge education problem when it comes to communication as well and how to have dialogues with people and this idea that you can just say these overarching things to anybody and they're just true because you say it or you've heard it. Um, it's really difficult. All right. So you saw the Dershowitz versus Kennedy uh, vaccine debate, which wasn't a debate at all. And I, I'm curious, based on your teachings and your research on how to have difficult conversations about this topic specifically, 
And anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about, please, I'm begging you to go on YouTube, look up the show Valuetainment. Some guy named Patrick, I don't know, he has a huge viewing audience. And he had he hosted Bobby Kennedy debating Alan Dershowitz, the great constitutional attorney who had been caught on camera saying that based on a Supreme Court decision from 1905, that, that constitutionally it was... Um, viable, it is defensible, that they could take you to a medical facility and, as he put it, plunge a needle in your arm. Okay, so you're basically obligated to get any product that the pharmaceutical industry feels like producing, even though nobody's done any safety or efficacy testing in 34 years. Anyways, and so everyone who cares about health freedom was outraged because here's this man who is just a god among attorneys. Uh, the guy's got to be 78. He's, he's yeah. like late 70s. So when you saw that, is it like a masterclass in how to talk to someone? Tell, tell us what you, what you see about the Bobby Kennedy discussion. Well, in some ways, um, I don't know if I would call it a masterclass, but I call it a cheat sheet um, <laughs> in some ways. Because here's the thing about open debate, and this is part of the reason we will not truly debate vaccine science, nor will we debate uh, openly debate health freedom, things like that, is when you put, you know, when you are having a debate and you have spectators, people who are watching it, because it puts it outside of your realm, outside of you, and someone's not attacking you directly, it really helps get past that cognitive dissonance. And okay. it really helps you to see things um, in a more open light, in a more open-minded way. And that's why debate is so important. And I would say, and in um, the debate between Dershowitz and RFK Jr., um, he was able to, you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was really just able to say the things all of us have been thinking for a really long time, like all of us mm -hmm. tried to say, right? He was able to put the facts out there very quickly, um, very easily, and he had someone who had to listen to him because he was debating him. And that's the other thing about open and honest debate is it puts it on the other person who's debating. They have to listen because they have to rebuttal. And that's good. Um, it opens everything. As to like one-on-one -on -one communication, you know, we don't often get this kind of chance, right? It's not often a true debate. And people, when they hear the word debate, you know, you'll see it on social media all the time. Stop trying to debate me. I'm not trying to debate you. I'm not trying to have this discussion with you, right? Um, and but so we, we used to debate, like our, our nation was founded on healthy debate. You listen to me, I listen to you, and we, we aren't doing that anymore. And that was probably part of what was so freshy, refreshing about the Dershowitz versus uh, Kennedy debate. And I think they both took it seriously. And apparently, you know, you got the sense that they had talked before and they'd already kind of talked through things. I think yeah. that they, for the sake of the friendship and you know, the, the many relationships they shared in common, you know, they've both been running in the same circles for decades. Um, but that's what like our country was founded on. And that dialectic process of, you know, there were two camps that hammered out the constitution and they argued with each other ferociously for yeah. hours and hours and hours. And look at the beautiful enduring document that came out of that dialectic process where the two ideas would push up on each other and what came out of it was better than if you just sat there and worked in a vacuum with your with your one set of assumptions. 
Yes. And I think that's a huge problem, right? It's a huge problem we have now, just like you're saying, it's extremely difficult to um, have open and real and honest debates because it's been labeled as like being aggravating or mean or, um, you know, this negative thing rather than a very positive thing. And the other problem is, you know, um, we have been so programmed and I do want to talk because part of what I do and how what I teach people is called NLP or neuro-linguistic programming. And um, it's a psychological approach to having people open up their filter and let you in and getting past cognitive dissonance. And um, we don't realize it, but on mass every day, right, we are being neuro-linguistically programmed by TV shows, by social media, by our parents, by our friends um, in lots of different ways. And we're kind of being emotionally taken over. And it doesn't have to be a bad thing per se, but in many instances, um, this programming now is geared toward, you know, if someone doesn't like what you have to say, you know, you either delete them or you punch them in the face, right? It's okay to be violent as long as you're in the right. Um, you know, as long as you're morally in the right, or, you know, we're not allowed to talk about that. There's a lot of shame involved, right? Shaming, things like that. All these things that get past people's filter and make them want to be more silent and quiet, Mm -hmm. you know, keep, keep yourself. And I, I use neuro-linguistic programming. I teach it to help get past that. So people will talk to you. So people will open up. So they won't be angry. Um, kind of using these shots against them because they've been using it against us our entire lives, right? (laughs) For decades. So I think it's important to realize, and again, like we were talking about, think, thinking about, your friends, your neighbors, people you talk to, like they are legitimately programmed. So are you. So is everybody. You know, we're all slowly deprogramming. We're all slowly making our way. And um, part of what we do have to do is we do have to stick through the cognitive dissonance, just like you were talking about earlier, Robin, when you get angry at um, people being angry with you or thinking that your child's a threat we do have to stick with it. And we do have to be good listeners if we expect other people to listen to us. I think that's a very good point. I I don't know if I've ever told my audience before that I did not tell my children's father that I was not immunizing them. I mean, that's how aware I became at a very young age that this, this topic was very, very hot and that I didn't know that I could trust that he would see things the way I did. He wasn't reading the books that I was and combing through the the published research on safety and efficacy of different vaccines. Um, He knew that after our oldest son was vaccinated, he was very ill. He was in and out of hospitals. Um, And I would later, many years later, find out that it's an actually um, common reaction to the MMR vaccine to have severe uh, asthma. But he hadn't had any asthma. He was four and a half months old. He was completely healthy. And then he gets the MMR vaccine and we're just in this tailspin of total chaos and near-death experiences and middle-of-the-night emergency rooms and hospitalizations. And I didn't, I didn't fully understand that it was be, you know, triggered by the vaccine. And then you know, I had my second child and started vaccinating her and boom, same thing. 
uh, not as bad, luckily, but asthma, which made me go, wait a minute, what's going on here? We must have some kind of genetic propensity that these toxins that we're injecting into our children just, you know, has caused this kind of reaction twice now. So I learned very quickly too to not tell friends, to not tell my, I never told my mother-in-law. I knew I would get massive backlash. I did not tell my husband's family that our children were not vaccinated. And I went to, I went with a bunch of girlfriends to Bear Lake on a little vacation. And I mentioned something about vaccines being toxic or my children having reaction. And one of my friends just lashed out at me and I never mentioned it again. Never in any social setting did I ever speak of my decision not to vaccinate again. Now I see it as a almost a social responsibility, especially with my career now and my podcast and being, you know, being an author and a, a, you know, an influencer, I feel like it's my responsibility to do what I can to educate people. They should make their own choice, but they should not make a choice in a vacuum of information. They should not make a choice like I did where I was given zero information. I was told nothing in the doctor's office about the significant percentage of children who end up significantly injured, autistic, or dead of Mm -hmm. vaccines. No one told me a word. And so I was pretty angry when I found it out through hard experience and then went and studied it and found out that these things that were happening to my children um, were actually fairly common. So so I, I learned to be very quiet about it. And that's really too bad. Talk about the, the communication strategies that you're teaching to help people get past that anger. Like how do we have these conversations with our friends and family who we really want to, we really want to wake them up, especially in 2020, when I think they're going to be coming at us with an adult vaccine schedule and trying to get us to take more and more and more shots as adults. Right. And there is, right. There is an adult schedule. And right now, less than 40% of, of people are quote unquote up to date on that. And it's been in the pipeline for a long time to continue to push this agenda on each of us. Um, and so I do think, like you said, it's really important to talk about it now, especially with the COVID-19 vaccine coming out so soon and a lot of people becoming more aware that there has been past vaccine faux pas and maybe opening up. And I also think, like you, many women, and not just women, people in general, but I would say I have so many women who come to me and you know, talk about, I don't know how to talk about this with my husband. I don't know how to talk about this with my friends, my partner. I don't know how to do this. And they feel like you, you know, because they get the lash very, very quickly because of the programming that you talked about earlier, you know, um, how dare you not vaccinate because you are a danger to society. Yeah. Good parents vaccinate. That's what we're taught. Yes. Good parents vaccinate. Yeah. And um, even on um, doctors get some neurolinguistic programming and, you know, they, lots of times what they, they tell you that, like, if you're a good parent, then you would vaccinate your child, right? It's that same programming, same shaming and gaslighting that we get all the time. And so in order to break up that gaslighting, um, I have a few strategies to get through the filter. I also, besides NLP, I've added some more practical strategies and value-based communication because I think that's so needed. And a lot of people work better with that. And the first thing I will say is, um, before I share anything, the first thing you should know is everyone, if you're going to do this, if you're going to communicate, and we all should, 
you have to be willing to practice. And with that practice, you have to be willing to get some negative feedback. That's just the way that it goes. And, you know, you can practice in a safe environment with people who share your views first, um, but eventually you, you will need to practice. And you can practice with lower stakes uh, topics first, but, you know, it's, if you do not practice, you will not become a good communicator. You won't. And um, even if you know all the good strategies, it's one thing to know them and another thing to put them into practice. And I, even me who like, I've spent years learning about communication and doing conflict management and things like that. I, I mean, I crash and burn. <laughs> like when I'm not on I can crash and burn. Like I just did it recently with a friend, like crashed and burned because I decided to have a text battle instead of like doing the right thing and calling her up. But um, here are a few of the strategies. So something you should understand is that your subconscious is about 90%, right? And it deals with long-term memory, emotions and feelings, habits, patterns, relationships, all that kind of stuff. And to get through the filter um, that's in between your conscious mind and your unconscious mind, you will have to use some spectrum of emotion. Not facts often bounce off. And I think that's where our community has a hard time because we are so fact driven and science driven. And, you know, let me show you the charts, let me show you the percentages, listen to this, listen to this, right? Um, we love that. <laughs> Yep. Because if you look at the evidence, right, you know, it's in our favor, but unluckily, um, that kind of stuff doesn't often get through the filter unless emotions are attached to it because your subconscious mind is all about emotion and your subconscious mind ages out at about seven years of age. And so <laughs> it, it loves to be safe and it really, um, will, if you can get into the subconscious your subconscious will believe anything you put in there. It'll believe. So you're, you're saying subconsciously, none of us are older than a seven-year-old. Yes. Yes. Subconsciously, <laughs> your subconscious ages out at seven years of age. Yes. Interesting. Yep. So that's why, that's why you have a, a really strong filter. And that's why you have really strong cognitive dissonance um, because your filter is protecting that subconscious mind from getting tricked. Because you're a seven-year-old. Yes, exactly. The idea you know, you have to use emotions and make the subconscious feel happy and safe to help it accept what you're, you know, um, trying to put in there. So part of um, getting through that filter, I mean, there's lots of different ways you can do it. Um, and we, these are used against us all the time. If you think about, think about like commercials, right. And tactics they use, right. What gets through the filter? Fear. Fear gets through mm -hmm. the filter, right. It's very strong. It's really easy to get through the filter. We see that all the time right now, you know, um, lots of time love can get through stroking. The ego can get through the filter, <laughs> all these strong emotions. Sometimes they can get through the filter. Um, but things like, you know, anger or you saying negative things often will bounce off. Um, so, so that just makes people put their mental walls up to you. If yes. there's some kind of insult to their ego, I think Bobby Kennedy stroked Alan Dershowitz's ego. They both did. They both did. It was almost, it was almost like gaggy, you know, if you're like yeah. a third party <laughs> watching it, but it, it was smart. So Bobby Kennedy would say something 
um, about his great respect for Dershowitz, which brought those walls down. I think that's what you mean. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. And then Dershowitz could hear him say, oh, I'm sorry. It's it's not actually true that um, polio and smallpox disappeared because of the vaccine. Let me give you more information. And they heard each other very respectfully. I mean, granted, they're on a stage where at least a a million people are going to watch it. So that helped. Granted, they knew that they knew what they were going into. They knew they were going into a debate. They signed up for it. But still, it was brilliant. You know, you watch Bobby Kennedy show show Alan Dershowitz great respect and then tell him basically, with all due respect, uh, you've been misinformed if you think that smallpox and polio disappeared because of a vaccine. Right. And, you know, like, if you think about it, how does it make you feel if you feel valued? Like, how do you feel about the person presenting that information? Do you want to listen to them more or less? You want to listen to them more. And in fact, you're willing to listen to them, even if you know that what they're talking about is completely counter to your opinion. Yeah. And and I I do this too. Like, and it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. It really sort of disarms people. If you say, you know, you are a super smart guy. You are a very educated guy. And so I know you'll understand. And then, you know, whatever it is you want to say, it's kind of like when my kids were growing up and they were teenagers, I would start with, if I wanted to convince them of something, I'd say, you probably already know this, but, and my kids would receive me so much better than if I just start condescendingly lecturing them. Totally. And it's because that filter loves your ego. Everyone's ego loves to be stroked and loves to feel valued. And if it feels valued, then it feels safe. If it feels safe, the filter can come down. And um, I think it's difficult sometimes to remember that. And I think that goes towards like the first real building block of all of this is rapport. You know, you have to have rapport and rapport is not just, you know, oh, we're old friends. So we have rapport, you know, we're, we're good friends. And that is a small piece of it, but rapport happens in every single conversation you have. Um, you are building rapport. And so building up that rapport, making people feel good about you and having like open body language, raised eyebrows to help people know that you are listening, you know, using kind language. And then um, with your body language, doing something called matching and mirroring. Have you ever heard of that before, Robin? Yes, but tell us about it. Yeah, so matching and mirroring is something that we do automatically when we're in sync with someone or close to them or we're letting them in. And basically all it is, is that you mirror or you match the person in front of you's body language, or you can match tone. You can also match, you know, the way that they speak using specific phrases. Um, But what that matching and mirroring does is it opens up the brain because the brain says, oh, you're me. You know, you're just like me. Oh, I can listen to you because you're just like me. So an example of this might be if you're talking to someone and and like many of us do, that person, you know, puts their elbow on the table and rests their head on their elbow. And if I were wanting to match and mirror this particular person, I would wait three or four seconds and then I would put my elbow on the table and put my head on my hand. 
to match and mirror that person. And you do that, you know, little by little, you wait a few seconds, they make a move, you wait a few seconds, you make a move, you repeat some of the phrases they said, and pretty soon you're in sync. And you would be so surprised. I know it sounds so ridiculous. hearing it because people will be like, oh, I would know someone's trying to copy me. Like that's so weird, but you yeah, do, do people feel manipulated or is it possible people will notice that and be like, they're this, this doesn't feel authentic. If you are poor, um, <laughs> if you move too quickly or you do it poor in a poor fashion, um, or without like true intent, then yes, people can feel that. But most of the time, I think you'd be surprised. People will not even notice, especially if you're in deep conversation. They, they will not notice because we automatically do it when we talk to people all the time and we don't feel like it's disingenuous um, during that. But that will open up people very quickly, even really hard, harsh people. Um, it will open them up but like I said, it takes practice, right? You have to be careful and you don't match everything they do. Just a few things, right? And you wait for a little bit after they've done it. So, so this is a, you know, be, be subtle with this. Don't be monkey see, monkey do. Yes. Okay. Be subtle <laughs> with it. But you'll okay. find it, it works. And again, you can also, if you're on the phone, or because people ask me all the time, like, what about Zoom? Like, it's a lot harder. Um, you can match people's tones. You can match people's phrases um, and don't say exactly all the time what they're saying, but match some of those, you know, phrases they say often, things like that. Help them cognitively recognize you that you're not a threat, but you're the same as they are and they'll open up to you. Okay. So um, let's see matching and mirroring, uh, stroking their ego or, or making it safe for them to accept what you have to say. What else? So, um, this is a really huge one. And, um, if all else fails and you forget, you know, some of these techniques, always remember question, questions, questions, questions actually break up cognitive dissonance. Um, and I'm not talking about, you have to be careful because, you don't want to have very condescending questions, sarcastic questions, right? We, uh, even though you may often feel <laughs> like you want to be sarcastic, um, but you want to have dynamic questions, um, you know, questions like, oh, why is that important to you? Or questions like, um, you know, why do you feel like this adds value to your life? Or tell me why you're worried or afraid or, you know, specifically targeting these um, emotions that they are feeling. And you can also repeat something they've said to you that is cognitively dissonant. Um, for example, if someone were to say, you know, you're like, I don't want your kids to be around my kids because your kids are going to spread disease to my children. Um, if someone were to say that and um, you would say- My, my whole audience, their their um, blood is boiling just hearing that. Yeah. You know, you're, you're posing it as a hypothetical, but I'm sure a lot of people listening are like, yep, that would make my blood boil. Exactly. And if they say something like that to you in order to break up the cognitive dissonance, you could ask a question like, 
Um, so you believe that an unvaccinated child could pass a disease even if they're not sick? Um, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And that can break up a little bit, right? And and they would say, they might say something like, no, you know, well, no, maybe they won't, but they could be sick. And then you can reply with another question, right? I um, So do you think that I would bring my kids around your kids if my kids are sick or have symptoms like a fever or a cough? You know, um, and that can also break it down, right? You can ask questions and you can even ask questions like, are you aware? Starting with, you know, or did you know? Are you aware? Are you aware that, you know, less than 40% of adults are fully vaccinated? Um are you aware that you know vaccine immunity fades in a relatively short period of time? You can ask these questions, kind of open up their brains and help them to think in a way that's not threatening, but will break up you know that cognitive dissonance for them. Yeah, and you have to be really careful with questions because they can sound snarky. They can sound like they're baiting someone. But, and you know, that one that I always used on my teenagers, it actually works really well with adults too, you know, where you're like, well, you probably already know that that's not really a question, but you probably already know that. And then whatever you were going to say, people say that to me all the time. And it makes me more interested in what they're going to say, because when they say, well, you probably already know. And then they tell me something I really had no idea. And I'm like, Ooh, maybe I should have known that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's like a double whammy because it's like a, like a pretend question, like (laughs) informing, but it's stroking your ego too, because it's recognizing like you're an intelligent human being. So I thought that you might know X, Y, and Z. So yeah, I actually, I actually did an interview today. I did another episode for the vibe show today where (laughs) the guy that I was interviewing said, said, I'm sure that you teach the principles of Ayurveda, you know, to your <laughs> followers. And I was, and I, I literally was thinking to myself, well, no, actually I don't. Gosh, I guess I should. I guess I should teach that. <laughs> right. It works really well. And I think also if you, when you get backed into a corner, you know, uh, like I said, if you forget things, questions are really good. And, you know, um, recognizing the person is also really good. Um, yeah. like I said, value, you know, like I can tell that you value this a lot. Oh, know? that's good. That's you know, good. I can tell you value your children and like you really value health. I can tell that you really do that. That's and- really, that's like listening and validating all in one yeah. and giving them a compliment, stroking the ego. It's like, that's like all of it right there. Everybody <laughs> write that down. I can tell, I can tell that you really love your children. I mean, you could say anything you want after you say that. I can tell that you really love your children. Yeah. That's good stuff. And, and I think, you know, um, we have to be aware too of, you know, what, what kinds of things are trying to get past our filters all the time. Like I said, like the fear, how do you counteract fear with someone? You counteract it with knowledge. And so we're getting counteracted. We're getting hit with fear all the time and it's getting past people's cognitive, their, their filters a lot. And so if you can help someone feel like they aren't, don't need to be afraid, um, it can also help get past that filter. Um, I think, I think too, that if we can, especially in the vaccine debate, it tends to be parents talking to each other and 
one or both sides can get really hot about it because, you know, I said that that's how I, you know, find compassion for a parent that I'm talking to who I feel like is getting really self-righteous about trying to tell me that I have to vaccinate my child because I, I just, you know, go to that place of empathy of, oh, well, they believe because of what they've been taught they believe that my child is a threat to theirs and that they could, my child could literally be killing their child. I mean, that's extreme, but you know, putting their child's health at risk, putting their child's life at risk. They've been taught that. And it's not their fault that there's this industry with a terrible agenda and a terrible track record. But, you know, I've found since I've had many, many conversations about this and I have to manage my own emotions too. I don't, I don't want to make anybody think that I have this whole thing nailed, but I think that we can just find that common ground of saying something like in the conversation, I know that we both really love our children. I know that the reason you believe like you do is that you care so much about your children. You love your children every bit as much as I do. And so in saying that as a preface to whatever you want to explain, you've reminded them that you're a dang good parent too, who loves your children and wants the best for them. And so maybe they could listen and learn a little bit from you too, not just the drug industry's propaganda. Yeah, I think that's um, a really good point. And I think, you know, um, a really, I think a really hard thing for us as people who want to inform, because I think once you get into this issue and into health freedom, you become extremely passionate about it. And, um, it's a tricky thing. I, I think passion is amazing and it's brilliant. And, you know, just because someone is emotional and passionate doesn't mean that they're not thinking clearly or they're not smart, but we do have, um, this kind of culture where passion, you know, uh, comes off as, you know, angry or turns people off sometimes, or, um, information overload can turn people off sometimes. And so I think, what we have to remember as we do this is even if by the end of the conversation, someone doesn't agree with you or someone doesn't know all the facts, right? Because I feel like when I talk to someone, there's so many facts I want to tell them. I want to tell them everything. I want them to know the whole story. So, so they'll know. So then we fire hose them. Yes. We and we fire- see their and we see their face glaze over. And that's when if somebody's glazing over and you know, I know my husband has to do this in his sales job. You know, he constantly asks questions to keep them engaged and keep them feeling they're participant and they're not just getting this like, you know, barrage of information, but, you know, to, to take a second and, and just like watch the other person too, because I've done that. I'm a, I have a ridiculous amount of minutia in my brain about all kinds of health and wellness topics, including vaccines. And I can fire hose people and I can bore the heck out of people or overestimate their interest. Right. And so checking back in with them you know, slow it down, stop talking, check back in, ask a question. So helpful. You know, I, I just learned to not overshare. Like if people want to learn about what I've learned about, um, vaccines and their history and history of the industry itself and how they came to be completely legally immune from any consequences of what their products do to people that to me, by the way, I know we're not talking about the actual facts of vaccines of what to lead with but that is we're we're putting up and, and you know this Julie because you were there at the health freedom symposium but it was kind of this idea that came together between Andy Wakefield being there and he put up on the screen this um billboard 
uh, that says vaccine makers have no liability. And then there was just some stock image. And I was like, Ooh, what if we took like a picture of Colton Barrett, who is a boy who got the Gardasil vaccine here in Utah and the things that he experienced in the way his life was destroyed by the Gardasil vaccine, which ironically is a vaccine that's supposed to protect against cervical cancer, even though you're like 13 times more likely to die of the Gardasil vaccine than you are to die of cervical cancer. What was a boy doing taking it? Well, that's the thing. The va- Why would the vaccine industry stop at girls if they could sell it to boys under the fake non-science logic of, well, someday they'll have sexual partners. Like, what does that have to do with anything? It's so, so bogus. This poor boy, and he finally committed suicide right before he turned 18. Um, so we kind of, between Andy Wakefield and then me taking it from there, and then Kristen Chevrier, who was running the Health Freedom Symposium event, and Robert Scott Bell, our both of our dear friend, who's a, a radio um, talk show host here locally. He got up there and raised a couple thousand bucks. I matched it a couple thousand bucks. Boom. We had thousands of, of dollars to put up billboards that say vaccine makers have no, have no liability with a picture of Colton Barrett leaning up against his casket and just his birth and death date. And we're going to have that up and down the, the Wasatch front because we want to use this horrible situation that we're in to wake people up and make them think about, do I really want an injection of a product by a giant mega billion dollar company that has no legal responsibility for the effect of their product? Right. And if we can wake more people up, then we've got more people to stand up to it when our horrible governor and our horrible incoming governor try to force the vaccine on us and they will. Right. And I think, um, small, you know, images are also extremely powerful. They get into the brain. That's why media is extremely powerful. And I think also small, small tidbits that you give people, right. Having a small goal of what you want to communicate and say, this is a win. If I can only communicate X, Yes. And that, and that's the kind of X is, yes, and that you can, you, you can ask it in a question. Did you know that vaccine makers have no legal liability? Just ask anybody that ask a, ask an ER doctor that ask a PhD, ask an, ask a medical doctor. I can't even count how many medical doctors I've seen talking about it. Say talk, they, they think medical doctors who are giving vaccines to children every day, they don't know. They don't know there's no liability. They don't know. And it's hard. It's hard. And it's, um, you know, there's a lot of, I, in the beginning of my journey, I even tried to share that with a friend. Again, um, I was trying to share over text. Here's one of my tips. Don't do this over text. (laughs) Please just don't. I know we all communicate by text, but if you want to communicate with someone one-on-one about a hot topic, whatever hot topic it is, don't do it over text. Just don't. It's so, it's so easy to do because when you, reply to the person you don't know what you're getting yourself into and then 20 texts later you have quite the situation on your hands and I, I I'm not gonna lie Julie I did the same thing and it's my oldest friend in the world we've been friends for 40 years now and we I actually ended up blocking her on my phone there were no I didn't say any unkind words to her but she was saying she was saying calling me and this is very early in this whole thing it was in March 
and she called me an anti-vaxxer right-wing nutter. And I got, I had the brain explosion like they saw in the MRI experience experiments. And, you know, I, I stayed really calm and said, well, I think that you might feel differently if you had a vaccine injured child like I did. And, you know, and I, I feel like I stayed in dialogue, but it was, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. It was the wrong medium. And eventually I'd had enough when she called me enough names, which has never happened in 40 years. We have never, ever had a conversation like that, which just goes to show you that the topic is hot and people are hot about it. And they're, they're going to opposite ends of the field um, in, you know, in, in this strange year that we're in and you're exactly right. So don't, maybe don't even touch it in text. Now that you've had this conversation, now you've listened to what Julie had to say, she's warned you. If you start a conversation in text or someone engages you in text, don't go there. Then you're, then you're 20 texts in, in a 40 year relationship could be seriously damaged. I've been sending her stuff. Like I begged her in Facebook messenger to um, watch the Dershowitz-Kennedy debate and she hasn't answered me in months. But, you know, I didn't, I I was like, it's a, it's a ethic of mine. It's a core value of mine to, even if someone's being unkind to me, don't dish it back to them. Okay. Don't, don't go to ego. Don't, you know, now you're, now you're just in a, in a bar fight, you know, and like, what's the point? And I, I really refuse to do that, but I did tell, I did not, she also doesn't get to rob me of my energy and call me names unlimited in my phone. And right. so I did, I did block her for the sake of my own energy, my own sanity, you know, the, the texting back and forth wasn't working and I haven't unblocked her and I probably should, but it just, it, it got out of hand so quickly. And I feel sad because she's the mother of three children. And I guess she's just decided that the motives of the pharmaceutical industry are pure and innocent, even though they've been proven guilty a thousand times over. And so Great, great lesson. Great lesson. Do not do that in text. Excellent. What it's else you got? Hard, you know, and if you do, if, like, here's the problem, right? Like uh, online, we're online all the time. We use things with text all the time. If you want to talk about this to somebody, do it over email. I know it's old school <laughs> and, you know, it's not social media. I mean, but the thing about email, which is even better than a direct message or anything like that, is you can do long form an email. Yeah. And you can prep people and you can, you know, give them time. And um, because I have done that. And so when people are like, well, I'm too scared to talk on the phone or, you know, it's too difficult to do this in person, email, email is the way to do it. And email will give you the ability to share your entire story. Text doesn't do that, you know, Um, neither does social media. It doesn't. Yeah. There's so, there's so much more nuance to, to an email. And when I get an email that's long. I take the time and read it, especially with someone I care about, because it's like, I I recognize how much time that took them to write it. Right. Exactly. And you don't feel rushed. Like you feel like you can do that. And I have done that. I have, um, I've sent, you know, my story and, and lots of information to a biophysicist who, um, works for a vaccine company and models vaccines. We've, We've been friends for 10 years and, um, you know, you'd be surprised. Like his response was so good. I've sent it to um, a chemist who works for a vaccine company. Like it just, it, 
even these people who sh- are going to be on the extreme opposite end of you, you know, when you have the ability and like letters, handwritten letters, oh my gosh, like your ability to talk and, you know, people respect handwritten letters so much more because it shows your effort and, you know, effort is very valued. You know, lots of people value that. And so you'll have so much more success if you can't talk to face to face. I think face to face or on the phone or over Zoom is always going to be the best route. But if you can't but, do but that, some people are really shy and some people aren't good on their feet, you know? They're not, you know, debaters or whatever. I have so many people I went down last Saturday and confronted our future governor Cox. You should yeah. go look at my Facebook page. It was like I posted it on yeah, on Saturday. I went to, I heard he was gonna be this fundraiser. I ran down the canyon and I was I prayed all the way down the canyon because I even though people think I'm quick on my feet and I am very verbal and it's probably easier for me than a lot of people plus I talk about all these issues on my podcast and in my Facebook lives for years and years and years now but it was still terrifying to me I don't know our governor I knew I was going to be standing there in somebody's yard in front of 30 50 100 people I didn't know how many people were going to be there I knew I was going down there to confront our governor about the fraud he's perpetrating on our people, our businesses, our children. And people kept saying in the in the Facebook comments, there's hundreds of Facebook comments on it. Last I looked, there were 10,000 people who had watched it. And people were just like, I can't believe that you thought fast on your feet like that. That's my jam. Like I'm great in a debate situation and I've got all these facts at my fingertips because it's kind of like what I do for a living. Right. Right. But if you don't feel like that, I love your idea. Write a letter, print it out and put it in the mail. None of us get very much mail anymore. Remember when we used to get mail? You don't, you're too young, but you know, or, (laughs) or emails, like that's the shy person's way. You know, you care about it too. You shy, quieter, more introverted people. You still are passionate about this. Write a letter. So I love it. It's a great idea. Yeah. I actually did have a pen pal all growing up. So I do know <laughs> about getting some mail. Although I did too. She was in England. She was in England and I just loved getting her letters because they were on this weird parchment paper and she used all kinds of words. And I was like, how are we both speaking English? You have so many bizarre words that I don't know. Right. That great. <laughs> well, that's great. And I, um, the last, I know, you know, we probably spent a lot of time and I don't want to take too much of your time up but i did i did just want to give some people some tips about being able to win with people who seem to have more authority than you do good um because i think that that is really difficult right i think the two most difficult are when it's your partner like a romantic partner or spouse and or when um it's someone like your doctor or someone who has a PhD or something like that. I think those. That's a good one. And I've had a lot of people since March of 2020 telling me my husband is totally following the rules and he thinks there's a killer virus on the loose. And I think it's a load of crap. And like, yeah, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that part too. Yes. So for winning with um, people who have more authority, let's like take the situation of doctor's office, right? Because I feel like so many people in this audience probably have had this experience, Uh, you know, whether it's with vaccines, it might be with your choices in medicine. You know, you don't want to get chemotherapy or take a drug or whatever. You're in this situation with a doctor. So um, with winning with someone who has more authority than you, there's a few things uh, to do. So in this situation in the doctor's office, right, 
um, you, instead of sitting down, stand up. I know it sounds like ridiculous, but (laughs) stay standing and hopefully your doctor will sit down because believe it or not, the idea of being like taller or larger or like a bigger statue, like I'm so short. I'm like five, two, Um, but like if my doctor is sitting down, I can be a little taller than him um, in that situation. But that the idea of height actually does play a role cognitively, you know, in our subconscious. And so you also, you know, you want to be open. You want to make yourself big as if you're going against a predator. That sounds, it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. You know, um, psychologically, cognitively, it will help give you an upper hand. Um, Another thing you want to do with someone who you know, supposedly has more authority or is an authoritative figure is you do want to cite whatever kind of education or anything that makes you an authoritative um, source as well. And, you know, that can even be, you know, I, you are the parent. It really can. Like saying something like, I have you know, been watching my son or my daughter for hours, you know, I've done X, Y, and Z showing and talking about your effort or like your, um, your authoritative area of expertise. Like, you know, I have a PhD or I also, you know, I'm studying law. I do this, I do that. That can also really help to kind of what you're doing in these situations by being taller, by mentioning these things is you're squaring up, you're getting yourself to be on an even plane with that person um, and helping them know, you know, I do know something about them, you know, letting about this, letting them know, you know, I do read IOM reports. I have been in research for six years, things like that. And then um, what you want to do also is of course, you want to use your matching and mirroring. You want to use your asking of questions and stroking the ego. Um, but you also, you know, want to keep it light. People, I mean, humor goes a long way and humor gets through cognitive dissonance. That's why we love to laugh, right? We love it. We get humor gets us. That's why all the, um, talk show hosts, right? Jimmy Fallon, all these people will talk about these political subjects to bring you onto their side because humor works. So being light, being funny and helping them understand, you know, common ground that you are the same as a human being. And you can bring them to this and say, you know, doctor, you know, I am just like you, I'm extremely concerned and I am knowledgeable about these things. And just like you, I am taking my time to, you know, um, care for my body and putting emphasis on that. It's my body. It's my, you know, this is my life. And like letting them know, like this affects, you know, me for a longer time. It's my body. It's my, my whole life. So please, will you be willing to help me? And that might sound vulnerable and vulnerability is good. It's not a bad thing. Letting someone know that you're being vulnerable or emotionally open lets down the filter. It puts it down. So being like, you know, I, this is a really tough choice for me. Can I just take my time? And if you also in the doctor's office situation, if you use up their time, because doctors usually have like 10 minutes with a patient, if you start asking all the questions and using up their time, they're much more likely to just let you get away with whatever you want. <laughs> because they'll be like, well, I don't have time for this. 
And remember, we don't have to get away with what we want. Like, remember everyone, if you're in a doctor's office, I've had so many people feel bullied into, you mentioned it, chemo, um, when they really didn't want to, but their family pressured them, guilt tripped them. The doctor basically told them, if you don't, you're going to die. I mean, I've had so many people close to me who did chemo, even though they didn't want to, or they did chemo and they only started learning about the alternatives when it was too late and they died. They literally died before they figured out I have other options. And my gut was telling me not to go this, go down this route or do chemo and then more chemo and then more chemo. One of my employees is in the middle of this right now. And I texted him today and I pleaded with him, please know that your doctor isn't in your body. Yeah. You know, they, they, they got him to do like seven or eight months worth of chemotherapy. And then next thing I know, I'm talking to him a couple of weeks ago and he's in more chemo. I mean, it almost killed him the first time. Right. And now that now they've upsold him into, and I was like, you, you know, don't you, that they get a percentage of that. They're literally commissioned salespeople. Right. And they don't, they don't make nearly as much money if they don't give you more chemo. Remember you're in your body and you can say, I need a break from this, or I want to think about this before I do anymore, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, and that's okay. And even like you said, even just the idea of asking for time, right? Um, just not giving a yes or no answer, you know, especially in a hostile situation, you know, saying, you know, I just really need to learn more about this. Do you have any more literature I could read about it? Could you just give me this? I really need to think about it. This affects me for a really long time. So please. And I think when we turn that on, um, that vulnerability on, it really opens some kind of humanness in the doctor or in the other person mm -hmm. and helps them to realize, oh my gosh, yes, you're a person. Oh my gosh, if it was me, I would want literature. I would want, you know, um, more time, more information, and that can really help. Um, so I think the big three like key things, if I were to sum it up is, you know, square off, square up, meaning like, don't sit down, you stand up, um, talk about your own accolades, you know, sing your own praises for a little bit, let them know, like you're an intelligent human being, let them know the effort that you've gone to, to obtain the information. And then lastly, you know, asking questions and vulnerability, um, with those people. And if you're vulnerable and let them know, if you try to, you know, keep it light, but help them to know you're a real person, I think it really leads to winning. You win always <laughs> with this formula, you know. I love it. This has been so helpful, Julie. I think at the end of this conversation, we can all imagine ourselves having that scary conversation with people. We want to have these conversations. We want to be in dialogue with people about these just absolutely critical um, these critical conversations and topics, but it's hard to know how to approach it. And I think you've given us a lot of really concrete tools. So tell us where, where my followers can, uh, can find you, where they can learn more from you. Okay, perfect. Well, I'm not on social media. Wah, wah, wah. Um, <laughs> I, um, I, stay out of that, but you can find me at um, researchbased.vipmembervault.com. And I think um, if you can put that in the show notes, it'll be easier than them trying to write it down. But another way to find me is just to email researchbased at pm.me. Well, thank you so much for everything that you're learning that will serve us. I think you're going to be a wonderful mother and a wonderful advocate as we head into uncertain times where we're going to be under more pressure than we have been before to perhaps 
have to get a bunch of pharmaceutical products we didn't agree to. So I think that um, your research topic is so timely and so important. Thank you so very much, Julie. You are so welcome. Thanks for having me on, Robin.